Welcome to the Basilea Hollywood Podcast, a community of friends committed to the message and practice of Jesus and His Kingdom. Bill is teaching today. <clears throat> and Bill is not feeling the best, so I'm going to pray for him. Do you want to hold the mic or have it on the stand? Okay, let's, let's extend our hand to Bill, pray for his voice to last. God, thank you for Bill. Thank you for his heart for Basileia. I just um, thank you for this text that shows your range of emotions and justice, and what you care about. And I just pray that you would sustain Bill's voice and that we would be able to, um, yeah, catch it. I love you, Jesus. Amen. Okay. I'm not my usual chipper self. I'm getting over a cold. Sorry. Uh, I'm going to have to drink frequently from my tea so that my voice hold, holds out, I guess. Uh, okay. So we're going to jump right into our text. If you have a Bible or an app that you use for that, you can take those out. It may be a good day to follow along with the text. It will be up here too. Uh, if you'd like to, if you don't have one of those things and you'd like to have something in front of you, you can raise your hand. And I, or Terrell, will hand you a Bible like so. I'll grab you one in a second. And if you are grabbing one of the Bibles that are being handed out, turn to page, I think it's 988. And otherwise, go to Matthew 21, chapter, uh, chapter 21, verse 12. Anyone else need a Bible? No? Okay. I'll give you a second to get there. <clears throat> Okay. Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he cured them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the amazing things that he did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became angry and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. He left them, went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Now, if you've been uh, around Basileia in the last year and a half or so, you know we have been going through Matthew's gospel sequentially in great detail. We're now about three quarters of the way through, which means there's probably another six months to go. Uh, and if you have been paying close attention or if you know Matthew's gospel, the general shape of Matthew's gospel is that um, the first half ish of Jesus' ministry. He's going around with his disciples in Galilee. He's doing uh, signs and wonders and healing people and stuff like that. And he's proclaiming the word of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God, doing all that good Jesus stuff. And then around the middle of his ministry, more or less, um, he begins to, the, the focus shifts to Jerusalem. He's heading to Jerusalem. Stuff's going to go down in Jerusalem. And so in Matthew 16, 21, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples 
that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so this, how he says this multiple times to them. They don't seem to quite catch it. Uh, and so there's this sort of sense in which the latter half of the gospel is basically Jesus heading to Jerusalem for all of this big stuff to go down. And so for a while now, uh, the suspense, I guess, has been building, and there's this expectation. We know some stuff is going to go down. Jesus has just recently now entered into Jerusalem, and so two weeks ago, Brady talked to us about the triumphal entry where, where he's riding in to the city on a donkey, and people are saying, Hosanna to the son of David, and all this stuff, and it's all these references to fulfilled prophecy. The Old Testament scriptures are being fulfilled in what Jesus is doing. So we get this sense that lots of stuff is coming together, and there's this ripeness to the time and place that things are happening now. And so that's where we are in terms of the context of Matthew's gospel. And um, in terms of the cultural context of what's happening. Jerusalem is in many ways sort of, I don't know if it's properly the capital of Israel, but it might as well be. This is um, the, the holy city where the temple is present. The temple is where God is most present among his people. This is where the promise of the land, the promised land, is most directly sort of identified uh, this is the most important aspect of the promised land. This is where God dwells with his people. This is where um, the people have their center of their worship life and their identity. Uh, it's not just about, you know, the synagogue wasn't such a big deal at this point. The main thing was you go to the temple a few times a year and offer sacrifices to God, and that's kind of, that makes this particular city extremely important. This city is also the center of religious authority, and so we hear about the religious authorities who are present. There's the chief priests, who are the ones who oversee the uh, ceremonial stuff that's happening in the temple, and then there's the scribes, who are the, uh, the Torah experts, who, who are the religious, you know, scripture scholars like me. Um, and these are the, the elite, all of these people are the elite people, they're the highly educated people, they're the experts who you'd figure ought to get God right. Uh, and... Furthermore, I don't want to read this into our passage too much because it hasn't been mentioned yet, but in a little while we find out that the Passover is just a few days away when this is all happening. And uh, what happens at the Passover, it's kind of, I think it's the main, it's at least one of the three main at least uh, Jewish holidays at this point in history. And uh, every man in Israel, and lots of men, uh, women and children as well, but every man in Israel is supposed to come to Jerusalem to participate in a ceremony on the Passover day. And so people are flocking to Jerusalem that aren't usually there. And even though it hasn't quite happened yet, I anticipate that the city is starting to get pretty packed. Uh, I live in Pasadena, and we have the Rose Parade every uh, New Year's Day. And for several days leading up to that, people start to show up, and RVs pull into town, and people set up their camping chairs along the parade route. And, and gen generally, the city gets kind of stuffed for several, it's very annoying to those of us who live there, by the way. Uh, so if you go ahead and not do that, that'd be cool. But, but it happens, right? And so I anticipate people are, have been streaming to Jerusalem and are continuing to show up in Jerusalem at this time. So that adds to the ripeness of the time. Not just, it's not just that the city is a particularly important city, but this is a particularly important time in the year for this city. 
And then uh, this city, Jerusalem, is also important because it's a royal city. It's the city of David. And so to hear Jesus being called the son of David as he's entering, there's this significance there because this is David's city. This is, um, there's an identity, a royal identity here. The king of Israel lives in Jerusalem. So all this is going on, and um, we see Jesus enter the temple. He didn't, that doesn't mean he walked into the, the temple proper, uh, but there's this sort of big area about, I think it's about the size of a soccer field that the temple is sort of rests on, and different people can go into different areas. And so I think the idea here is Jesus is in the general area, and in the general area, there are merchants and uh, money changers who have tables. And uh, as far as I understand it, what's happening is when you come to Jerusalem, especially around Passover, you're going to offer uh, an animal sacrifice, as people did. And if you're coming from far away, which people were, uh, you either can bring an animal with you for days and days and days and risk, you know, if, if the animal breaks its leg or something, then you can't offer it because that's one of the rules. So that, that's annoying. That's inconvenient. It's much more convenient to bring some cash and then you can buy an animal to sacrifice. And so that's basically what's going on. What's interesting is that doesn't seem that bad to me. It kind of makes sense. Like, hey, yeah, why wouldn't you do that? Um, so, and, and history doesn't give us an obvious, like, these guys were awful because or something. Uh, the best guess, and I think it is the best guess, it's, the, it's what people usually take this to mean, is that they must be overcharging people or uh, you know, ripping people off in some way. And so when Jesus says, you're turning this into a den of robbers, I don't know how else you take that. I, I assume the beef is they are exploiting people. And especially uh, the fact that it mentions the doves in particular here, uh, the doves are the poor person's offering, right? If you're wealthy, you offer an ox. If you're medium wealthy, you offer a sheep. If you're a typical, you know, barely scraping by person like most people were in this uh, day and age, you'd offer doves. And so that may, the fact that doves in particular are mentioned may highlight that. Maybe uh, people who really you can't be taking financial advantage of are being exploited. That appears to be the beef that Jesus has with the money changers. What is very clear is that the religious institution, the system that's supposed to be working in concert with God's purposes, we find out is working at odds with God's purposes. It's become an enemy of what God wants to do, and Jesus is bearing witness to that, and that is apparent. Now, um, I wanted to highlight something that happens a couple verses before the passage that I read to you today, and this is uh, verse 21, 10, and 11. It says, when he, that is Jesus, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And so it's interesting to me that they're identifying him as a prophet. Uh, so I thought I'd talk about that a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So a prophet is uh, fundamentally someone sent by God to do something. Uh, and prophets show up, I've kind of said before, it, like, I think a lot of time prophecy gets talked about as like mainly about just, okay, we heard something God said and we say it. But the fact is a prophet shows up when something needs to change. A prophet shows up because the status quo needs to be altered. And what that means is prophets get in trouble a lot. Being a prophet is not a cushy uh, calling. 
And prophets often are speaking truth to power. They're, they're proclaiming that the powers that are in place are not doing God's stuff right. That's usually uh, what prophets do. And that appears to be what Jesus is doing here. He's being very prophet-like in declaring that the uh, systems of religious authority that are in place are not in line with what God wants. Uh, furthermore, prophets, we often think of prophets speaking a prophecy, but uh, we find in the Old Testament that a lot of the time prophets do stuff instead. They do symbolic actions that bear witness to what God is communicating to his people. Like Ezekiel does all this weird stuff that God tells him to do. Hosea marries a prostitute to be a witness about how Israel is unfaithful to their God, stuff like that. Not always the most fun stuff. Um, and so I think we would see what Jesus is doing here as sort of in that tradition of prophetic, symbolic action. So it's not functional. I don't get the sense that the money changers never came back and he kicked them out for good. They probably showed up 20 minutes later and kept changing money, right, once they got everything rearranged. But this is a symbolic act that shows uh, this is what God's, you know, probably most people ignored it, but this is what God is saying, uh, what you're doing is wrong, and now that's been borne witness to in a tangible way. I think that's what's going on here. Uh, and we can also look at the healings that Jesus is doing. He does this all the time, but this is also prophet-like behavior because the prophets did miracles of healing that demonstrate that they're prophets sent by God. So Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah, for example, do a lot of, uh, Elijah and Elisha in particular, in the Old Testament, heal a lot of people, um, raise people from the dead and stuff like that, and that demonstrates God is with them and restores people, which is great. So Jesus in all these ways is being prophet-like, and it makes sense that people are calling him a prophet because he fits the prophetic pattern in the way that he lives his life. Um, what I think is interesting in, the, in uh, Matthew's gospel is you get this thing that recurs a few times where there's a question of who Jesus is, and mostly people don't... To say he's a prophet sent by God is one thing. To say he's the Messiah is another thing. To say he's the Messiah or the Christ is to say that he is uh, God's chosen king who's going to bring about God's purposes in the world and for God's people. And so in the uh, Old Testament scriptures, we see all these uh, prophecies about a descendant of David who's going to rule as king and that rule is going to be righteous and set the world right and everything is going to be so awesome under this king and um, this is going to be a descendant of David, this is going to be someone specific that, that the people are waiting for. And in the time of Jesus, there, were a, there was a very high degree of expectation. We know this from other writings and things. People were waiting for someone sent by God to do this not everyone had the same ideas. It's not clear that everyone had the same understanding. But there was this high degree of expectation that the, the son of David is going to come, and, and when he does, he's going to bring about God's purposes for us. So there's this interesting thing where people want to call Jesus a prophet, but they have trouble identifying that he's that king guy. He's the son of David. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. Um, when, when Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? They say, oh, yeah, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah or one of the other prophets. And he says, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, oh, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Those are both ways of talking about this king that God is going to appoint. And so there's this whole, you see that a bunch of places. So what I see here, and it's not totally explicit, but I see that Jesus enters 
the city, and people are saying, Hosanna, the son of David. This is recognizing him as the king God has chosen. And yet, when they're asked who he is, they say a prophet. And so I get the sense that they're telling the truth about him without really totally getting what they're saying. Or maybe some people get it and some don't, but he's not universally being understood. And in the passage I read you today, we see children saying Hosanna to the son of David. And it doesn't explain all this, so you take it with a grain of salt, but the, the sense I get is they just heard everyone, all the grown-ups saying it when he entered Jerusalem a few verses earlier, so the kids are just running around saying what they heard, Hosanna to the Son of David. They don't, I, don't, I doubt many kids could explain what that means. I doubt that, the, and I think this is why the religious leaders are mad. They're like, these people, do you hear what these kids are saying? They're, they're saying you're the Messiah. You're obviously not the Messiah. You're from Galilee. You're poor. You're really, you know, you haven't overthrown Rome, who, who occupies our land, and that's the main thing we're looking for the Messiah to do. You don't look, you hang out with, you know, whatever, prostitutes and tax collectors and all that good stuff. You don't look very Messiah-like, and that's been clear throughout the gospel. Uh, so are you going to let them wrongly say that you're the Messiah? That's ridiculous. I think that's the idea. They don't get what they're saying, but it turns out they're right. And so Jesus says, yes, I do hear what these children are saying, but haven't you read that it says, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have appointed praise for yourself? And this comes from Psalm 8, which is um, a psalm that has everything to do with how people are uh, inadequate and, and so much less than in comparison to how great God is, and yet God has chosen people to steward his creation. This is, the, this is the often quoted verse, who is man that you are mindful of him, comes from Psalm 8 as well. And so the idea in the psalm is not specifically that God is going to make literal babies and infants praise him. The idea is you've chosen little old us to be uh, worshipers of you, despite how much less good and amazing and powerful and capable we are than you, O Lord. When I think about that, it's mind-blowing. That's the idea. So he cites this, and in this case, it's funny because actual children are actually praising Jesus correctly, while the, the, these people who are supposed to be experts, the, uh, the religious authorities, the elite educated uh, experts, are working against God's purposes. They're getting Jesus wrong. They're mad about what is happening. And so we get this thing we get so often in Matthew, this reversal of the insider and the outsider who's supposed to be in line with what God is doing and who actually is. Uh, so that's all really good stuff. When I, um, quick story, when I first started um, really living life with Jesus as an adult, that sort of initial awakening and beginning to go to church as a grown-up and all that stuff happened basically because of signage. So uh, I w walked past a storefront church thing, and they had this sign. I was going to try and get a picture, but I couldn't find a picture, so you don't get to see it. Uh, but they had this banner on the front of this storefront, and it said at the top, Church of the Undignified, and it had these two pictures of basically toddlers dressed up as superheroes. And they had like capes and rain boots and goggles, and one of them was like putting his hands up like he was going to fly like Superman. 
And I didn't, it wasn't necessarily clear it was a Christian church or, or what it was. I was just like, I want to find out what that is because that's really interesting. And I felt drawn to it. And then I came and God showed up and cool things happened. But I came to find out, okay, the point of this banner is that God does profound, important, amazing things through inadequate people, through people who are in comparison to the tasks and in comparison to the greatness of God, uh, no more than little toddlers or something. And so I, I kind of see that as the same spirit of what I see happening in this passage. So to tie that all together, uh, and I've said kind of a bunch of stuff, in this passage I see, first of all, God using inadequate people. Make sure what I wrote down is, matches what's up there. I see the challenge to the status quo, the person operating uh, with God challenges the status quo. I see the reversal of insiders and outsiders, and I see the uh, timeliness and particularity to God's intentions. So it's not just that God wants money changers' tables overturned or something. There's a ripeness to the time and place that this is happening, who's doing it, what's happening while it's going on, etc. Um, I think it's important that we recognize God has particular intentions in particular situations and has particular things for us to do. Uh, God has stuff for you to do that you're supposed to do, that you're particularly fit for. I think that's, that's not all spelled out here, but I think it's true and it, it shows up here. Okay, so um, considering all that, I'll just say a few things that we could consider implications for us sitting here today since we're not in Jerusalem at Passover time a long, long time ago, uh, and then we'll do some listening and prayer and so forth. So first of all, um, I think we ought to be excited because God does have profound things for us to do that exceed our potential. That does not necessarily mean everyone's going to do something flashy and, and impressive, but uh, I do believe God has important things for us to do. And wants to do things through us and does do things through us that go beyond what really our own ability allows for. There's all kinds of ways that can look, and I won't give you a long list, but I think that should make us excited. I think that sometimes we can treat, uh, and I find myself sometimes treating my life with Jesus as burdensome or doing things for Jesus as kind of a chore or... Uh, I get more, I'm more interested in doing whatever thing I came up with that I think I ought to be doing, and I don't want to be inconvenienced by God's intentions for me or something like that. I don't know if any of you feel that way, but if we get the kinds of things that God does through us, that should make us excited. We want to hear what he has to say. We want to hear what his purposes are. We want him to do the awesome, cool, amazing stuff that he wants to do in and through us. Second, uh, I think we should be bold like Jesus, doing stuff for God means that sometimes uh, it doesn't work tidily. Sometimes prophets get in trouble. Sometimes people sent by God make messes. Sometimes uh, following Jesus involves a cost. In fact, he says it definitely will. And so uh, we do need to be bold. There may be hurdles or things that make us not want to do something that God is... Uh, drawing us into or something like that. So boldness, having an attitude of boldness and recognizing that that is a good attitude to have would be a wise thing for us. Uh, and then thirdly, 
I think we need to be discerning. Uh, because the fact is, as we see in this passage too, we aren't, the thing God wants to do isn't always what one would think God wants to do. Sometimes uh, God's intentions are counterintuitive. And sometimes God is saying something and we can be really oblivious to it, like the religious authorities are here. The truth about Jesus is being proclaimed and, and they're not getting it. They're thinking this is, this is really not good that this is happening right now. Uh, we, we may tend to want to identify with the Jesus side or the children's side of this, but frankly, we're religious people. We can wind up on the chief priests and scribes side of this, and so we shouldn't assume that we get God right 100% of the time. Chances are we don't. Um, that means being aware that God may be saying something. It also means being aware that we may actually be part of the problems in certain ways. We may be doing things well-intentioned that are actually working against God's purposes. So discernment is needed. Um, to illustrate this, the need for discernment, uh, you can pick just about any issue, but because it's current, we'll go with the transgender bathroom controversy that's going on now. I would think it's fair to say there are Christians on both sides of that dispute that believe they are being like Jesus in this passage, that they're speaking truth to power, standing up for what's right, etc. They're not both right, I don't think. Some, you know, there needs to be discernment. It's easy to make a case for why something is God's will. Um, it takes work sometimes to discern what God's will is. I'm not going to weigh in on that issue today, but uh, we need to be listening to what the Lord is saying, what the, how the Holy Spirit is guiding us, how God may be speaking to us in circumstances that are non-obvious and so forth. Um, and also the fact that there's a timeliness and a particularity. It's not just these are the universal ethical values that we're supposed to embody. It's a little bit that, but there's this specificity to how God works in specific lives, in specific circumstances, in specific ways, with specific people. And so we need to uh, be doing the best we can to tune into what God is saying in this circumstance, not just in general. Um, I wanted to add that one of the ways I think, um, I just don't want to be 100% vague. One of the ways that I think uh, a church like ours today needs to be discerning, aware, and cautious, there are many, uh, but one that I think is very important right now is uh, the issue of uh, systemic racism. Uh, racial bias, white privilege, things like that. A lot of the stuff that is going on uh, with respect to race is something that a lot of us don't think about, especially uh, the lighter-skinned folks among us. And that may mean that there are ways in which we can be harmful when we're trying not to be, when we're trying to do something good. Uh, I think there's a lot, um, a lot of need to become more aware of the different dynamics and things that are going on, the ways that some people are being unfairly advantaged and some unfairly disadvantaged, how what we do contributes to that, and also mindful about what can we do that actually might help to dismantle that. I am not an expert on that by any means. Uh, my wife and I do feel a very strong sense and commitment that we need to learn more, talk with people, just, you know, make that a thing that we're focused on and thinking about and putting focus on when our impulse is to not do that. And so I want to invite others to 
join us in making that a commitment. Um, there's other things like that that I think we need to become more mindful of too, but that's one I think is very important. So I leave you with that. What I want to do to close is um, I want to bring a couple of questions before the Lord. If someone from our worship team would give us some mellow music to do that too, that'd be great. Uh, so I want you to bring three questions before the Lord. The first is, are you calling on me to do something? There's a good chance the answer is yes. But then what? Uh, second, are you saying something to me that I'm missing? And then third, are there ways in which I've been part of the problem, whatever exactly the problem is? Uh, I think we should ask these questions, recognize that if God is telling us something about these things, it's ultimately a really good thing. And we should want to hear and be eager to hear what God has to say. Uh, so we'll go, we'll, we'll hear some music, we'll spend a few minutes. You can just ask these questions prayerfully, see if you have any sense that God is speaking something to you or something's coming to mind. Uh, and then um, at a certain point, if there's, or let's just say, if you feel like there is a response to something you're hearing that you want to carry out, either by talking to someone or praying with someone, a few of us will gather in the vicinity of the bottom of the stairs over here. You can come and we'll pray with you and talk with you and whatever needs to happen. Or if you know someone else here and you want to pray with or talk with them, you can do that too. Uh, so I'm going to say a quick prayer <coughs> and then we can all start bringing those questions before the Lord. Uh, God, I thank you that... Uh, your purposes are good, and you are powerful to bring them about. I thank you that despite our inadequacies and um, the ways in which we are disoriented, you still use us to bring those purposes about. And I pray that you would begin to put your finger on specific things in our particular lives. Lord, you see, <coughs> you see all of us. Put your finger on the things in our lives that you want to tell us about and uh, call upon us to do something about, Lord. I pray that you would um, work powerfully today in us, Lord. Thank you. Amen.